Well, church, if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to Galatians chapter 4, our text for today, Galatians 4, verses 1 through 11. If you were with us last week, we examined Paul's explanation of the miracle, the mind-blowing, heart-enlivening miracle that is a union in Christ, that, that God, the God of the universe, who made galaxies with his fingertips and can hold oceans in the palm of his hand, that God notices us and desires to make us his children. It's, just, it's simply stunning, isn't it? And, it? and it should be. But unfortunately for many of us, we're, we're so incredible, it's only right that God love us. I mean, who wouldn't? We're so valuable. The, the real shocker is that, that God doesn't give us something more tangible in exchange for our becoming a part of his team. We, we are of such great worth. God is only doing what any sane deity would and, and getting a blessing for himself by throwing his lot in with us. Now, hopefully the arrogance of such a perspective is clear along with its folly, for we can't control anything, can we? We can't control the weather, as we've seen, hitting our coast, the future. We can't even control our own thoughts. And we saw this several weeks ago with our children. But just as an example, don't think about a chicken. 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 Don't think about it. Stand firm. Be strong. Don't you dare, chicken, think about that fluffy white bird. Chicken. Don't. And as some of you have already thought about that chicken. Some of you have raced past the bird. You're already at the ch sticking chicken statue outside Royal Farms. You're thinking about fried chicken and how, how good that stuff tastes when Don Bennett brings it to us for our events and you're just getting hungry now. And if you weren't, you are now. You're welcome. The point is, we are so prideful despite being so weak with our pride simply one further evidence of the fact. And yet, God, in His grace, loved us so much that He sent His only Son to save us. This is amazing love, church. And it's this love that we examined last week as it's displayed in God's redemption of us, sinful men and women and adoption as His children in Christ Jesus. And today, we're going to see how Paul attempts to illustrate what he's previously stated along with emphasizing a spiritual reality to which we in the West are particularly numb. And I'll explain what that is in a moment by way of a story. But first, let's read our text. Galatians 4, beginning in verse 1, where the apostle writes, What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, he is subject to the guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, father so you're no longer a slave but a son and since you are a son God has made you also an heir formerly 
When you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. And may God bless the public reading of his word. Church, when I was a child, I had the chance to see my grandparents once every two, three, so many years. And the year I turned 12, my nanny and pop, so this was my mom's parents, but my nanny and pop came to Zimbabwe as volunteers with the IMB to teach at the seminary in Gweru. This is the hometown of Herbert. It's his old stomping grounds, Gweru. And that, that year, or thereabouts, that they were in Zimbabwe, it was really special to have grandparents so close. We went up to see them as often as time allowed, which, as you can imagine, was far more frequent than it had ever been when they were living and pastoring on the western shore, where my grandfather was the pastor at First Baptist in Laurel. We also took a bunch of trips together. Now, some of those were for fun, others for ministry, with the one that pertains to the key point in our text today being the latter. Now, we were in Bight Bridge, which was a border town between Zimbabwe and South Africa, and Pop had gone down to help one of our missionaries with an outreach project. Keen to help, to spend time with family, we all drove down to share in this evangelistic work. Now, details as a child, you can only imagine, for escape me, but I remember, and, and we have a home video to prove this, but at the close of the Sunday service in the rural areas, the missionary and Pop held this baptism for those who had come to faith during the time of teaching. And this service was held in a crawl, which is a cattle pen with a trough serving as the baptistry. And in typical African culture, there was much celebrating and ululating as the different men and women demonstrated their faith before their church family. And, and everything was marked by great joy and excitement until one older, very frail lady who had to have been in her late 70s, maybe even 80s came forward and she was preparing to be baptized when all of a sudden this woman's voice changed. It dropped like two or three octaves and her, she proceeded to throw off these men who had been leading her to the baptistry displaying a strength that was clearly inconsistent with her petite frame. It, it was all overwhelming and quite frightening. And the missionary and my grandfather immediately gathered around her. They began praying for her. The men who'd been leading her rallied around her and tried to hold her while she fought them off. And, and for some four or five guys, it was quite a scene. And my mom caught much of this on camera because she'd been recording it for my grandparents. So they'd be able to take it back and show when they were home with their church family upon uh, their return to the States. Now, as I said, I don't exactly remember what transpired but I remember my grandfather sharing, and my parents, they can attest to this, but I remember that my grandfather shared how as they prayed for this woman, she became calm. And eventually she just went limp, as if something that had previously been animating her body left. And then she opened her eyes, and as if nothing had happened, she Submitted herself to baptism, coming up out of the water, celebrating, just as all of those who had preceded her had done so. We've never experienced anything like that here, have we? And yet this experience in Zimbabwe was not uncommon, particularly in the rural and remote areas where witch doctors and 
other traditional healers still plied their trade. Now I realize that such displays of demonic activity are readily dismissed here in our country. And this is why I made the point earlier that we in the West typically are numb generally. Not completely, but generally to the principle which is Paul's concern. I think his main concern in the verses that we just read. And the reasons for our cultural rejection of such spiritual realities we'll consider in just a moment, along with the issue itself as Paul presents it. But first, I want us to see the Apostles' illustration. The Apostles' illustration. And I'm calling it that because our NIV, if you have an NIV translation, begins verse 1 by saying, what I am saying is, and then Paul Continues, the ESV, if you have an ESV translation, opens with the phrase, I mean that, and then what Paul means ensues. While the Holman reads, now I say that. And in the original language of the New Testament, this verse begins with a phrase that scholars believe and agree functions to introduce the material that follows as an elaboration and clarification of what's just been said. Namely that, which Paul began addressing back in chapter 3, verse 23, where he wrote, Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. And now, so that his readers won't miss the point that he's trying to make, I think Paul restates it in the form of this illustration. As long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. Appealing to what presumably would have been a familiar case to their context, Paul relates the imprisoning of his readers prior to faith, so that's that which he stated back in verse 23 of chapter 3. He relates their imprisoning to that of a child in a home with many servants. And as a child in this setting, per Paul, the individual's lot would have differed little from that of a servant as regards to their freedom. Each, so the servant and the child, were under the laws of the house which they neither set nor could ignore without punishment. However, while the child and the servant do share their standing in common, so the child is only temporary awaiting the time set by the Father. That's the time that I believe Paul viewed as the point when faith should be revealed. I love the close of verse 23, the final phrase there. And church, there's something comforting about this illustration as I believe it reveals both the nature of our belonging and the extent of God's knowing. The nature of our belonging and the extent of God's knowing. And let me explain. By Paul's use of this father-son analogy, we see what has unfortunately for many of us become almost cliche when we consider our relationship with God. Our belonging to or, or coming to faith in God. It isn't some intellectual feat that we perform in which we grasp the reality of God in a deeper and, and richer way than ever before. Nor is this an act we perform, thereby obligating God to accept us. Rather, it's our adoption by a loving God who, as I mentioned last week, if you were with us regarding that, my nephew's adoption, Kenan, he, God, chooses us. We don't choose him. You know, Kenan didn't select his parents. He didn't go online and pick out a couple that he thought would provide a great life for him, a father who could play the guitar and a mother who had a 
beautiful sister? I mean, he was picked by a couple. You're paying attention. He was picked by a couple who loved him even before they knew him while he was still a servant in the house, to use Paul's illustration. And church, this, is, this leads us then to that second point of comfort. Not only are we adopted as God's children, but he knows us before we came to be, and he still planned to make us his own. And what this means is that there is nothing that you have done or could do to disqualify you from the adoption process. In other words, and in keeping again with the apostles' illustration, the father isn't going to uncover or discover something previously unknown, some heinous crime or, or shameful past that now disqualifies you as his child. You can't lose this belonging because you did nothing to earn it. So do you know the joy of belonging to God? And are you sure? Because you can be. So Paul starts out with an illustration. He then moves on to give an explanation where beginning in verse 3, he notes how those to whom he's writing, so these are the Galatian believers, he notes how when they were children, which is a reference to his illustration, so not meaning literal youth here, but rather that period prior to their salvation, when they were children, they were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. There's been a lot of study done to try and determine what these basic worldly principles refer to. The Holman, if you have the Holman translation, renders the original of this as elemental forces of the world, while the ESV offers elementary principles. And what makes the interpretation particularly challenging here is that the original term employed by Paul, it's one that has multiple meanings, all of which are dependent upon context. So it's kind of like the word, the English word shoot, where you can shoot a gun, you can shoot a gap, shoot pool, shoot film, shoot up, grow a shoot, you can shoot the breeze, and there's more, where in each instance, each instance, the meaning of that word is dependent on the context. So too is it here, verse 3, where this word can mean a, a formal sense, or it can mean an element, which it could be anything as an element from a note on a musical scale to an alphabet letter. That said, there are three particularly relevant interpretations of this word as it's used in context here. The first describes the elemental components which comprise the universe or the world, which would have been understood in Paul's day to be air, earth, fire, and water. That's one option. The second rendering reflects the essential principles of whatever area of study is implied, which in this case here would have been God's word. So that's a second altar. The third refers to spiritual beings, spiritual beings. And I, without going into detail or at least an exhaustive explanation as to why, I believe that the most probable reference here by Paul is that third one, because verse 8 and 9 in our text, Paul explains how formally when you did not know God, so this is that period in which by Paul's illustration prior, the Galatians were children, he writes, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God. So we're talking about spiritual beings here. But he continues, now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it, he asks, that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? There's our, there's our term again. Principles. 
do you wish, he continues, to be enslaved by them all over again? So there appears to be, to, to me at least, as well as others, there appears to be a connection between that which by nature isn't a God and which had enslaved these Galatians to the weak and miserable principles, which, by the way, as I said, is a repeat of that same term, elementary principles, translated earlier, only verse 9. Paul adds these two adjectives, weak and miserable, to help elucidate it. And so what I believe is Paul's primary point here, church, is that prior to salvation, the Galatians were enslaved to spiritual beings who aren't gods in their nature. Because there's only one God with one Son and one Spirit proclaiming one gospel. So for Paul, the beings who by nature aren't gods aren't figments of the Galatians' imagination. So they're not imagined nymphs or, or fairies resulting from spiritual delusion. They, they are very real as evidenced by a lack of apostolic denial. Meaning Paul here doesn't say they don't exist. What he does say is that they aren't gods. And we see him do this very same thing in 1 Corinthians, in the first letter that we have that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, in chapter 8, verse 5, where he writes, even if there are so-called gods, that same term, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are, many gods and many lords, yet for us, believers, church, there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came. And then, just a couple chapters later, in that same letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 10, verse 20, Paul drops the bomb of sorts, revelatory bomb, as he says, what he thinks these so-called gods are, when he writes, but the sacrifice of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. Now earlier I mentioned how I believe that Paul's principal point in this text is one that we in the West, particularly West, are insensitive to, even to the point of denial. So without asking for a show of hands, I just simply want you to consider your own felt response to Paul's words regarding demons. When I read 1 Corinthians 10, 20, did you nod your head in agreement, your heart in agreement, or were you tempted to look at the person beside you with a look with raised eyebrows like, is he serious, Andrew? I mean, surely he isn't suggesting that, that evil spirits are the slave masters of all unbelievers, those that I work with even. I mean, that's just crazy. We're, we're getting out of the realm of religion now, Andrew. We're getting into the, the fantasy. This is too weird. You know, what was your heart's and your head's response? And right here, I can only speak for myself, but I know what the Scripture says. And I know what I heard and what I saw in Africa. I also know what I live surrounded by, and I don't see the kind of evidences Paul attributes to demons today. And so this presents me with a dilemma. Does this mean that Paul's explanations of sin and attributions of spiritual slavery and sickness to demonic possession, does this simply, is this reflecting his pre-enlightenment understanding? And that now with the aid of science, we've advanced to the stage where such dependence upon spiritual explanation for the unknown it's just a thing of the past. Or is Paul revealing the truth 
about spiritual warfare. And again, here, I can only speak for myself, but I pray my conviction reflects your own because if I choose to dismiss Paul's concerns, then I must also choose to dismiss Jesus' words recorded in Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 20, that he, the Son of God, drove out demons by the finger of God. I have to choose to dismiss those words along with Peter, the apostle's testimony that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Or James, Jesus' brother in his letter, chapter 4, verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee. Or John in his first letter, chapter 4, verse 3, who makes clear that every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. And there are more references that I could share, but I won't. Because if you aren't convinced by these, it won't matter how many are given. And this begs the question for those who remain unconvinced. Why? Particularly, why do we in the Western cultures that we find ourselves in, why do we seem inoculated against such spiritual entities? Is it because we've been brought up to believe only what we see? And if so, why? Why do we see such a big deal being made of Santa and the Easter Bunny? Isn't parents' encouragement to believe in Santa worse by far than religious indoctrination? At least God encourages loving others, even our enemies. What does Santa say? Or the Easter Bunny, who encourages nothing but sugar and overeating. You know, or could it be that we've reached a place in which we've intellectually move beyond such mythical, fantastical beliefs? And if so, how in the world does Star Wars or Star Trek or any number of the Marvel DC comic stories get a hearing? Aliens? Really? In church, we could spend a great deal of time probing the inconsistencies our culture evidences by their wholesale rejection of spiritual realities. But that won't get to the root of the problem, which I believe is tied to what Paul reveals to the Corinthian church in his second letter, chapter 4, verse 4, where he explains how the gods of this age have blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Friends, I believe that this is the reason many dismiss the reality of demons. It's because their minds have been blinded. And this was Paul's concern, and it's the subject of his exhortation. And we've discussed his illustration where the apostle likens Galatian Christians to children in a home under guardianship until such time as the father is ready for them to claim their inheritance. And we've just considered his explanation as to what the slavery or guardianship was while these men and women awaited, as Paul writes in verse 4, the time which fully came when God sent his son born of a woman born under law to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons where those who experienced this glorious grace also received the spirit of God's son the spirit as Paul writes who calls out Abba father so Paul is now able to say that you're no longer a slave that's you who've received the spirit you're no longer a slave but a son and since you're a son God has made you also an heir and this is cause for celebration. However, 
as we noted, Paul is deeply concerned that these Galatians are turning away from their newfound freedom and they're returning to slavery, to those weak and miserable principles, so-called. And right here is where I believe we need to see, and if you can't, let me help you to see, the diabolical nature of our adversary's work. And part of why contextual understanding of elemental principles, that term is so challenging, is, is because of the apparent contradiction given if we regard them as we have, as referring to demons, to spiritual beings. Because, verse 10, Paul references the Galatians' return to slavery as a return to observing, as he says, special days and months and seasons and years, which clearly references the law and its many festivals and, and its celebrations. And therefore, if Paul's concern is, and we've seen this already as part of his repeated focus on faith as what justifies and not obedience to the law, but if Paul's concern is that the Galatians are returning to bondage under the law, then is he not contradicting himself by also suggesting that they're returning to demonic bondage? And I don't believe that he is. Nor do I believe that this reference to the law necessitates a different understanding of elementary principles. And here's why. I believe that verse 10's reference to the law reflects all that we've seen to date regarding the dangers of legalism. That is, abiding by these calendared events, as Paul points out here, in order to justify one's faith. And friends, we know that this approach is fraught with error. We've seen this together over the past few weeks. And therefore, it's nothing but a return to slavery. The very thing from which God had gloriously rescued the Galatians in the first place. At the same time, verse 8 sort of peels back, if you will, the, the political correctness, if you will, of all that's taking place here by revealing that bondage to the law is really synonymous with bondage to demons. And therefore, in return, their return to independent righteousness achieved through obedience to the law, the Galatians were walking right back into the realm of Satan. And friends, this is possible because, as Paul writes elsewhere, when he again wrote to the Corinthians regarding their Judaizers, their false teachers, so men who shared the error of those who had infiltrated the church in Galatia, he writes regarding their Judaizers, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, he continues, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then, says Paul, if his servants, Satan's servants, masquerade as servants of righteousness. Guys, this is as... One pastor theologian notes, this is a daring statement because what it reveals is that Satan and his servants, his demons, achieve some of their most destructive work in the church by becoming servants of righteousness. And what kind of righteousness, we might wonder? It's the kind that's described in Romans 10.3 where Paul writes, they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own righteousness. They didn't submit to God's righteousness. In essence, Satan and his demons, Paul is saying, specialize in taking God's law and tricking his church into making the commands a means of self-righteousness, where rather than resting in Christ's perfect 
righteousness, we now find ourselves living to make God love us. Living to earn his favor. And church, we need to heed this word of warning this morning. Because you realize what this means for us? Satan is quite happy, quite happy for you to obey the Ten Commandments, to serve in a ministry team, to participate in our Ocean City dinner, to go on a mission trip even, so long as you take credit for all of those things. Shoot, as one pastor has said, Satan doesn't mind if you come to church, teach Sunday school, or preach. He's all in favor of whatever your moral agenda is, provided you rely on yourself instead of the Spirit of Christ, and you take credit for it yourself instead of humbly giving glory to God. Because, friends, when we rely on our efforts to merit God's favor, then we have forsaken grace. We've mistaken the law's purpose, and we have abandoned, in Paul's words, the gospel for what is no gospel at all. Are you relying on yourself, on your obedience, your abilities, commitment, your strength, or are you resting in the fact that God, by His grace, or as Paul said in the text that we've read, are you, when the time had fully come, God, by His grace, sent His Son into the world, born of a woman and under the law, so like us, in every way but without sin, so that we might, by grace through faith, receive full rights of sons and daughters? Are you relying on the law or grace. And church, I don't believe that this is a question that we can answer today and then move beyond. Meaning we will daily need to revisit this resting in the gospel because we're so prone to wander. Lord, I feel it as the hymn writer wrote. Prone to leave the God I love. We must daily look to the Lord and say, God, may I rest today in your grace May I do all that I do, not for my glory, but for yours, because you've sailed, you've saved me, you've sealed me, sealed me for your courts above. And when we find ourselves irritated by fellow Christians receiving our accolades or, or being celebrated for what we could do better or envious of a brother or sister who did what we consider to be our job, well, even that idea of a job is troublesome because what we do isn't done for reimbursement. Because Christ has already given us himself. He is our very great reward. God is the gospel. He's the end. You don't get Christ to get to heaven and escape all of the frustrations of life in the now. Christ is the end. He's the end of it all. Church, may we be reminded this morning, I pray, of how subtle is our adversary and how sinister his intents that we might be vigilant every day over our life constantly examining our hearts motivations so that we may glorify the only one who is worthy who is Christ would you pray with me as we close Father we praise you for your word a living word Father, a word by which you, in the power of your spirit, brought us to life and opened our eyes to understand the glory of Christ, who is God. Father, and this is only a work that you could accomplish, for this isn't a, the result of an intellectual moment of illumination. This isn't a, 
result of a work done on our behalf that now merits a response by you. This is the work that only you can do, opening hearts' eyes such that we see what previously we could not see. God, and as you open our eyes to truth, you enable us to appreciate just how sinful we are. And how glorious is the work that you have done in bringing us to life. For God, each and every one of us was the cause of Christ's death. It was our sin that placed you on the cross. Lord Jesus, we crucified. And yet, while we were still sinners, you died for us so that we might have life. This is the depth of love that you have for us, God who you are. And therefore, there's nothing that we could ever do that you did not know before you died for us to save us. You are the Father in the house, and you know who are your children, heirs, awaiting that time until you revealed your righteousness in your Son. God, thank you for doing that for us. We who are your children. Father, we ask that you would enable us today to be reminded of just how subtle and how easily swayed are our minds to the way about which we do the things we do. Who it is that we do them for. Father, would you guard us from our adversary's desire to burden us, to obligate us, to obedience in hopes of earning favor when you have freed us from those lies. Father, all that we do, we do by faith. Our outworking of this life-saving grace is done in your strength and for your glory. God, we ask this morning that if there are those, as Bob prayed even before, who, who have never understood the freedom that we have in what you have done for us, that, Father, you have opened those eyes to see today, and, and there might be a, a response. And, God, for we who, who may have recently been battling with a, a sense of burden or even frustration with others who have taken away things that used to be ours and by which we felt worthy or, or more worthy of what you have given us. God, would you strip away those lies as we've heard today, for that is what they are. And the righteousness that we have is the righteousness that has been earned for us by Christ. And therefore, we do all that we do simply to glorify you as the servants of all. God, thank you for freeing us and for the hope that is ours in Jesus. And we pray these things in his name.